This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 49, Losers, Runners-Up, and Number Twos. Well, hello again, everyone. It's time for another Incredible Stories podcast, where I hope to bring you stories you probably haven't heard. I'm Josh Virla, your primogenial host, and thanks for being here. Remember to share the show if you like it. Even if you don't like it, share it anyways. Maybe someone else will like it. And feel free to send me a show idea, haiku, or comment at contact at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. You know, I was pondering about the list of accomplishments throughout human history, littered across the podium of firsts are many great names and accolades, but seldom does history remember those who came in second. Sometimes these runners-up accomplish things of equal amazement as those who came first, or sometimes the second fiddles fall just short of glory. At any rate, I thought it would be interesting to explore some of the close-but-no-cigar types and give them some credit, or at least shine some light on their often largely forgotten or overlooked efforts. Here's what I know. From the first man to step foot on the moon to the first U.S. president, these names are known well. But let's look at some of the lesser-known number twos. Mount Everest is the highest point on Earth, and long looked to as the pinnacle of human achievement. Climbers go there to overcome freezing temperatures, oxygen deprivation, frostbite, icy crevices, yetis, etc. Many have tried, many have failed, and some have died. But in 1953, it was conquered for the first time. John Hunt's famous expedition included many men, but ultimately the person credited with being the first man to step foot on top of Mount Everest was none other than the acclaimed New Zealander mountaineer Sir Edmund Hillary. Achieving much fame from conquering the 29,000-foot man-killer, Hillary even earned himself a knighting for his troubles. But did you know that climbing Everest was really a team effort consisting of many other people, but significantly, Hillary had a climbing partner, a Nepali Sherpa named Tenzing Norgay. And contrary to popular belief, a Sherpa isn't just someone who carries hiking equipment and guides non-local people. No, Sherpas are an ethnic group of people who live in the northeastern part of Nepal. But they are well known to be expert mountaineers, and this fact was instrumental in the Mount Everest expeditions. Their skills and knowledge of high-altitude climbing made them very valuable and key team members. But anyways, Tenzing went with Hillary up Mount Everest, and the duo helped each other along the way until finally the decision was made as to who would be the first man to stand atop of the world. Now, interestingly, for two years, the two remained somewhat coy about who the actual first person to reach the summit was, insisting that their climb was a team effort, and rightly so. But Tenzing eventually revealed that Hillary was in fact the first man up the mountain, and hence he received most of the fame. Now, curiously though, the photographic evidence of a man standing atop of Mount Everest is only that of Tenzing. You see, Hillary took Tenzing's photo, 
but for some reason Hillary declined Tenzing's offer to photograph him back. Some say it was because Tenzing was unfamiliar with how to use a camera, maybe Hillary was just modest or didn't want to risk dropping the camera down the mountain and losing their proof. But no matter the reason, Tenzing doesn't receive as much shine being number two, and of course, he wasn't knighted either. And one of the reasons for this is that he was Nepalese and not subject to the British knighting, but he did receive the George Medal and some other smaller accolades. But perhaps one of the coolest things he did receive was the honor of having the highest mountain range on Pluto, the planet, the dwarf planet, was named Tenzing Montes in his honor. So that's pretty cool. Let's move on. Now the first person to break the sound barrier was American Air Force Captain Chuck Yeager on October 4th, 1947. This badass test pilot pushed the limit of flight in his X-1 rocket plane achieving Mach 1.07 or 820.9 miles per hour. Curiously, two nights before he was scheduled to make his historic flight, he broke two ribs after falling off a horse. But he still sacked up and kept that injury quiet so he could later add a dash of bravado hot sauce to his already courage-soaked flight. But do you know who the second person to break the sound barrier was? A man by the name of James Thomas Fitzgerald Jr. He was also a captain in the U.S. Air Force and broke the sound barrier in his XS-1 rocket plane on February 24, 1948. He reached a speed of Mach 1.10 or 843.9 miles per hour. He was a decorated World War II pilot and Chuck Yeager in his autobiography said this of James, quote, he was the best takeoff and landing pilot I ever saw." Unquote. Sadly, it would be later that year that James died. Chuck and James were flying together at the Cleveland National Air Races, and these were a series of races that attracted some of the best pilots in aviation and also served as a showcase for emerging technology and designs. And so this is why Chuck and James were there. Now, on September 9th, 1948, James was flying a T-33 aircraft which had recently began being produced by Lockheed earlier that year. This aircraft featured two 312-gallon fuel tanks that were located on the tips of each of the wings. And when James came in for a landing, one wing hit the ground and it began to cartwheel. He suffered traumatic head injuries and died after 11 days of being unconscious on September 20th, 1948. Now an equally dangerous profession is that of barreling over Niagara Falls. The person to survive going over Niagara Falls first in a barrel was a woman named Annie Edson Taylor who was an American teacher and accomplished this feat in 1901 at the sprightly age of 63. After testing her bed mattress lined pressurized oak and iron barrel design with an unlucky cat, she deemed her excursion over the falls to be safe enough. So with the help of some friends, she entered her barrel and was put down the river from the American side of the falls toward Horseshoe Falls on the Canadian side. 20 minutes after the plunge, they finally opened the barrel and found Anne had nothing more than a gash upon her head. However, 
following her trip over the falls, she had this to say, quote, If it was with my dying breath, I would caution anyone against attempting the feat. I would sooner walk up to the mouth of a cannon knowing it was going to blow me to pieces than make another trip over the falls. Unquote. But attempt they did. And the second person to accomplish the strange act of going over Niagara Falls in a barrel was an Englishman named Bobby Leach, who executed this act in 1911. Now, his barrel looked like it was more made of metal, and before going over the falls, he was a Barnum & Bailey circus performer and owned a restaurant where he would boast, Anything any can do, I can do better. Which I guess he did better if you count better as being hospitalized. After his barrel went over the falls, he had to spend six months in the hospital recovering from his injuries, which included two broken kneecaps and a broken jaw. Nice. Suck on that, Annie. More broken bones than you. He seemed like an interesting chap, though. Later in life, he would recount his barrel ride over the falls in vaudeville acts and lecture halls before opening a pool hall in 1920 near the falls. He spent some time here trying to out Daredevil himself by swimming the whirlpools near the falls, but ultimately failed and had to be rescued by a riverman. No biggie, said Bobby. I'm just going to go on down to New Zealand for a publicity tour. So he went down to Kiwiland in 1926 and here he slipped on an orange peel and broke his leg. I'm not exactly sure how one does that, but he did it. And as a result from his broken leg, he developed gangrene, which forced doctors to amputate his leg. Sadly though, he died two months later from complications. Time for one more? Of course, we have all the time we need here. Say, who invented the telephone? Why, Alexander Graham Bell, of course. Bell is credited with filing the patent for the Hello. first practical telephone, and he was the founder of AT&T. You might have heard of them. Bell's patent was filed on February 14, 1876, a mere few hours before rival inventor Elijah Gray filed his paperwork. Bell, forever tied to verbal communications via electronic transmitting, and speaker of the first words to transmit over the telephone, which were, of course, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. So what happened that Gray was late to file his paperwork and his name doomed to the heap of almost famous names through history? Did he wake up later than normal? Did he get stuck in buggy traffic? Well, this is a bit of a controversy to be sure, but essentially this is what happened. First, Bell was in Boston and Gray was in Illinois at the time. So neither of them actually went to the patent office in Washington, D.C., but rather their lawyers were delivering the paperwork. The oversimplified theory is that Bell's lawyer got there first and filed the patent, but Gray's lawyer arrived later and filed something called a caveat. And a caveat is a document proclaiming to the patent office that you are intending to file an actual patent on whatever your invention was. It basically would hold your patent spot for a year and could be renewed for a fee after a year. So Gray's lawyer apparently arrived at the patent office a few hours before Bell's lawyer and dropped the caveat in the Dropbox, 
where it ended up in a basket of paperwork that wasn't gotten to until the afternoon. By this time, Bell's patent was filed and his lawyer had requested that Bell's filing fee for the patent be entered immediately into the cash receipt ledger. This would cause Bell's patent application to be taken to the examiner post-haste. Now, when the clerk finally got to Gray's caveat paperwork later that afternoon, they entered the fee into the ledger which showed it to have arrived after Bell's entry and Gray's paperwork wasn't examined until the next day. But that's not the end of the story. Now, on February 19th, a patent examiner noticed that Bell and Gray had similar features in their invention and suspended Bell's application for three months, which would give Gray time to file a full patent. But Gray's lawyer was notified that Bell's application had been notarized on January 20th, 1876, which would have put Bell's paperwork overall as the earliest work on record and Gray would have lost the patent anyways. So, Gray gave up the caveat and claims of being the first inventor of the telephone, and on March 7, 1876, a patent for the telephone was credited to Bell. Now, there are some conspiracy theories involving stealing of ideas, spying, and having people inside the patent office, and another person who was claiming to be the true inventor of the telephone. But that isn't what this episode is about. Instead, let's see what happened to Gray, the silver medalist of the telephone. Because of his work with harmonics, he is largely credited as being the father of the modern-day music synthesizer, and he did have more than 70 other inventions and patents, some of which include the teleautograph, which was a precursor to modern fax machines, so don't cry too hard for the electronic communication loser. We may not know his name, but he did leave his mark, and to he and his fellow second placers, I salute you. And now you know what I know. Humanity has an obsession with firsts, but it's hard to blame us. Who doesn't love a winner? The first person to do something is often applauded for their bravery, ingenuity, or trendsetting. Plus, not everyone can be first, so the rarity of that gold medal winner makes it appealing to the public for adoration. But it is the number twos, the second place finishers, the runners up that might be equally important. You see, it's the second person that reinforces the first person's accomplishment. They are the witness to the greatness, the bolsterer of a trend, or they offer confirmation of a theory, and without that, is first really all that great? If a winner wins and no one is around to see it, does it really count as a win? Perhaps not. But now for something that is always first place, the haiku. You can have your first. Number twos are the shiznit, even if not known. And that's all the time this week, guys. Check out our main site at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Send me an email, haiku, or show suggestion at contact at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. Rate us on iTunes and peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher.
For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh, and remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word. Stories and